Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning here. Those of you in Lancaster, Myerstown, joining us online. We're going to be in Luke 9. Shouldn't surprise you if you've been tracking along with the series. Uh, we'll be in Luke 9 this morning. My name is Jared. I serve as one of the pastors here, overseeing our kids and students. Sometimes they oversee me, um, but uh, also our young adults. And so you love, we love our young adults around here as well, and some of our adult discipleship classes. Uh, that are going to be kicking off very soon here. So uh, just uh, glad to be here this morning, see what God has for us here in Luke 9. Well, uh, watching this bumper, you know, each of the pastors has sort of a different perspective on this. Uh, Pastor Jerry started off and he, um, he was able to connect to this, but man, my man rode real dirt bikes, right? So like he could kind of roll his eyes at what was, you know, the flaws of that. Uh, Pastor Ed, I won't say uh, too much about that, but he, if you notice, he said he was playing with actually like the plastic toys. So there's just maybe a gap in eras um, with that. Uh, Ed's one of the coolest dudes I know, and he can just say that, and I just get jealous of his world. And uh, Pastor Nate, he didn't have a lot of comments with that. Uh, growing up in Indonesia, probably didn't afford him uh, the, uh, maybe the, uh, the cultural, uh, uh, I guess, ideas that we had here um, happened in the States um, at that era in, uh, through the 80s. But uh, for me, this was right in my era. Uh, this is what I grew up with, and I loved uh, video games at the time as much as my parents would let me uh, play them. And what I loved about them is I got lost in the fantasy world of it. And I wasn't like a fantasy world type person. I was more of your sports games. I played uh, some of these games and thinking that if I played the games, that somehow in my young mind, it would translate into some real life skills. So I would play certain games like a game called Tecmo Bowl. For those of you that are of the younger era, it was more of a retro bowl. Um, but uh, for some reason, I thought that my football skills in the game would translate into the football skills uh, out on the field. It didn't. Uh, same with certain driving games uh, that you would, you would do and you would race and you would think uh, that, uh, that, that it would translate. I tried the first time uh, uh, driving a dirt bike, riding a dirt bike, and uh, could not get out of first gear for a long time. So I learned very quickly that these don't uh, translate uh, super well. But for me, what was uh, most reality, and if you know me well, um, this shouldn't surprise you, but was a game called World Class Track Meet. World Class Track Meet was a game that was simple in the concept is you press some buttons to uh, move down a track uh, when the gun fired. Uh, there became uh, with it a, a power pad that if you would stomp on this power pad really fast, you could go faster, which I learned later on because I started hearing my friends running faster times. Anybody from the 80s know the secret instead of just jumping on this like this? Show me. 
Oh yeah, some of you got it. Yeah, some of you just, just, just get down on your knees and start pounding it. It goes a lot faster. Yeah, it wasn't until uh, I got out into the track till I realized my uh, button skill pressing uh, didn't translate to real life. You know, the fantasy world of running uh, didn't uh, make Olympic times uh, for me, for sure. And, you know, we're going to see this play out. Uh, Winter Olympics kick off this week. And we're going to see them do uh, amazing, exceptional athletic feats. And, you know, I guarantee uh, that none of them got proficient uh, through a video game. Um, You know, you don't win a gold medal with your thumbs is what uh, somebody said during our service review this week. Mindset and understanding of the sport, the physical abilities, the repeated practice, and the heart of determination uh, to press on. At some point, if you really want to move from understanding to real life, you actually have to do it. So isn't this the same about evangelism? At some point, we got to let the facts that we know change our hearts. Then we can move in action and get in the race to be used by the Lord. When it comes to evangelism, we can be maybe stuck in our heads. I don't know about you, but do you play out the conversations in your head, the, the back and forth? Well, if I say this, then, then they'll say this, and then I can respond with this, and then maybe it causes you anxiety thinking about you don't have an answer for that fake conversation you just had in your head. Maybe you run out the scenarios. You think about what the environment's going to be like. If it's going to be too loud there, maybe that's good because some of, it could, uh, some of the voices could be blocked out or maybe you want uh, something more private and you, you just run the scenarios in your head and yet in the end we struggle maybe to carry it out though the Lord may be putting these opportunities before us. Of course, Jesus is wanting us to go beyond just thinking about evangelism and stepping out in faith with the opportunities that he places before us. And so today, my hope is, and what worked for me when when studying this passage was that we allow what we know to change our hearts so we can take action and be effectively sent. So we're going to follow the example of Jesus in serving others by trusting on him and, and trusting in his timing and, of course, his power. And so as we navigate Luke 9, uh, we remember that Jesus is in the process of training his disciples to live sent. A sent people uh, are called to, are, they're there to seek the called. As we uh, started in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 9, he's using his disciples, these very imperfect people whose lives are just committed to Christ into building his kingdom. He sends them out. As it says there, with power and authority. And he sends them out with little distraction. No bag, no money, no food. Don't bring an extra tunic with you. And as he was sending them out, people were beginning to get curious. A natural response, Jesus' reputation is growing. More curiosity about him and, and what he's doing. And then we get to Luke 9. Jesus is training his followers to live sent In this passage, we'll see. And as much as I would love to tell you that our story today is about a boy giving up his lunch or a crowd is being healed, really what we're going to see here is from through the perspective of the disciples that Jesus has some training for his disciples to live sent. And so last week, while we talked about engaging our minds and showing the curious and asking deeper questions, this week, we'll take what we know in our minds to transform our hearts so that we can practically serve others for the sake of evangelism. Move from head to heart to hands. And so we come to this amazing story today 
Well, I would call this Sunday school famous story. And uh, this is the only miracle besides uh, the resurrection that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I'm thinking that Jesus has something to teach us through this. So, all right, Luke 9, I hope you're hungry. Let's go. Uh, Verse 10, we're starting in today. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away uh, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go buy, uh, go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. There's two things we're going to observe today that must be uh, to follow Jesus' example of serving the crowd. To serve the crowd, we must first be ready because God's timing is always right. We must be ready because God's timing is always right. Question for you. How do we know when a sent opportunity is before us? Are you expecting an audible voice? Wouldn't that be nice? Are you looking for a sign Will it be obvious, do you think, like exactly what you prayed for in the same manner? Well, from today's text, it's going to be clear that we must be ready at any point to execute God's plan. So watch this situation play out. Let's see in verse 10. Did you catch what it said here? On the return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. Now, the apostles or the disciples used interchangeably in this are going to return from their short-term mission trip. You have to almost jump back to uh, verses 1 through 6 because we have a a story 7 through 9 in there that gets interjected like, meanwhile, in another part of Israel. And they had just come back. They took no bag. They took no bread, no money with them. They were totally dependent on God. Uh, God uh, provided for their needs, either miraculously provided or through other people. They were preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as it says in verse 6, that they were doing this preaching and healing everywhere. So it must have been this amazing experience. And they did this, as it said in verse 1, with power and authority from Jesus. So the the disciples have this life-altering, mind-blowing experience. They saw and did amazing things. And now the disciples return, probably tired, probably excited, you know, a combination of what they had just seen, and for very good reason. And it says there that they told Jesus all they had done. They probably had a lot of stories to tell Jesus, healing and teaching that work, lives that were healed physically and spiritually. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm a verbal processor, so like for me, I need some space to be able to talk about what happened there. And I'm guessing that Peter had a few words to say as well in this scenario. And so what does he say? Here, check out back in verse 10. And and Jesus says to them, he took them and withdrew them apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
Now, Bethsaida is a significant location and why he took them there. Jesus does nothing by accident because it's important to the setting of our story. Bethsaida on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus does a lot of ministry in the Sea of Galilee, about three miles from Capernaum, which is uh, essentially his home base in this territory. But you're going to notice something. And if you look real close at the map, there's a river that is coming down the Jordan River. And they are just to the east of the Jordan River. To the west of the Jordan River was Herod's territory. Remember Herod, the guy that we were booing last week? You got that out of your system, I hope. Um, Pastor Nate asked for that. Uh, and, and so... You know, he's out of the territory. Herod, the guy who had killed John the Baptist, uh, the one who uh, was, uh, was very curious and wanted to know more about Jesus. So they move to the east of it and to uh, the territory of Philip the Tetrarch. This is also the hometown of a couple of our disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. That'll be significant for later in our story. And it says that they're outside of town. He took them to uh, outside of town for privacy and solitude. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, it says, away from people to rest. Jesus was caring for his disciples. And so we see that Jesus and the disciples, they're withdrawing. They're, they're not to draw attention. That's why they're in Philip's jurisdiction. They're getting rest. Mark 6, uh, verse, uh, his account of this says they, that Jesus has come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. Physical, spiritual rest. They're reflecting on the trip as we saw in verse 10 here. On the return, the apostles told them all they had done. The expectation here is rest and reflection. Now we could stop there and see some principles of how to rest after a busy ministry season, a busy week or day. I get this, man. I've been on mission trips and retreats. I've had a, a long week and it's small group night and ministry opportunities are before me. And this is not a prohibition of rest, of course, but Jesus has more to teach his disciples the apostles may be back from their trip, but this uh, training is not over. And so let's observe in the disciples and maybe us uh, the gap that is occurring between the mind and the heart. Disciples' ministry is successful because they're gaining attention for Jesus for sure. The, the crowd shows up. It says in verse 11 that when the crowds learned it, they followed him, that they're following him in all the accounts uh, uh, throughout the gospel that they're saying that essentially they heard Jesus was somewhere and they chased after him. Why'd they come? I mean, some came because they wanted healing. Others probably just wanted to see the show. Some may have heard the stories and were curious. Jesus was the latest trend, and clearly the crowd interrupts this restful scene. Did the, uh, maybe the disciples were thinking, did the crowd not realize that we needed some rest at this moment? And we don't know everybody's individual motivation of the crowd for, for being there, but we do know that they were at least intrigued by Jesus. They wanted to see something. We have to assume that the crowd was full of potentially called and curious people. And, and the curious people interrupt the scene. Have you, uh, have you ever noticed that truly curious people sometimes lack discretion? Like, like they want to resolve this tension in their spirit so much that they just can't let it go. The curiosity grips them. 
We laughed about Curious George. You can YouTube plenty of things about Curious Cats if you want some entertainment. For those of you that have a toddler at home, you know that when you turn to do the dishes that you hear something going on in the background with a curious toddler. For those of you at work, you have somebody so curious about the latest work gossip that they need to interrupt your time. I've worked with plenty of curious teenagers over the years and have said to them, I told you, you can't go up to the upstairs of the church, right? You know, but curiosity grips us. And sometimes we lack discretion or social cues in those moments because their need to know outweighs their need to look good. And so the crowd of curious people that's there may not recognize even your situation in context. They may not recognize that they're coming at an inconvenient time for you. And so Jesus is receiving the crowd in this moment, shows that he will receive gospel opportunities even when interrupted. How is Jesus able to welcome them when interrupted? I hope that you're thinking, man, I'm just not sure if I could do that. Well, first of all, it wasn't an interruption to him, but an opportunity. He didn't look at the crowd as an annoyance to his schedule. He cared for them. Jesus was aware that some were purely coming for physical healing just to relieve their current pain. So that's why we're talking about being ready because God's timing is always right. If you've prayed for impact, God may answer that at inconvenient times for your schedule. I was um, so moved last week uh, after, after service. I was praying with somebody up front here and they were sharing to me uh, just about a scent opportunity they have with a neighbor. And they were saying how they, they just, their heart is so broken for them. But what they were sharing to me convicted me. Obviously, this message was fresh in my mind. Pastor Nate Newell had stepped off and I knew I was up next. And so I'm thinking about this. And as they're telling me, you know, they were saying, you know, they come at inconvenient times. Sometimes the, the car is running and I have my jacket on. It's like hint, hint. And yet I stay and I've been late to things because I've wanted to minister to them. Like those are the kind of things that are just, the God will bring into our lives that, that don't seem like the most inconvenient times, but God always has the right time. How do we move from annoyance of the crowd and ready to accept him? Well, we're going to see here that it's the motivation. Jesus is motivated by compassion. Matthew and Mark addressed this, the motivation for the lost. In Matthew 14, 13, he said, in this account, he said, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Mark 6, 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' response to the interruption is compassion. Compassion uh, defined as a, a pity and understanding of and suffering with. Empathy is understanding from someone's perspective, but compassion is empathy with a desire to help. Put another way, compassion is empathy in action. When I have, uh, when I think about compassion and how to have compassion for something, God has wired that in us. I wouldn't consider myself the most compassionate person. My wife has majority of that in our household, but I do have a soft spot for middle schoolers. You know, I love middle school students, and I've observed that while I have that compassion, not everybody may have the same compassion towards a middle school student. And some people will ask me, like, I don't, I don't know how you do it. Like, I don't know, like, why you'd want to spend your days working with them. I'm like, man, I, I feel lucky to be able to do that. 
I love the stage of life they're in, figuring out life, the questions they ask, and um, work with plenty of parents that have lots of questions. Actually, they don't know even know what question to ask sometimes. They just say, I have this son, and they're like, they're like, you know, a middle schooler. And I'm like, yeah, like, let's go. You know, they, they don't really know how to even ask the question. And, and, and to, to get to a heart of compassion for a middle schooler in my world, what do you do? Well, first of all, I tell them, remember, you were once a middle schooler as well. You may not remember how you exactly thought in that stage or the reasons why you did the actions, but you were figuring out life and trying to figure this out. For those of you who need some reflection about, unsure about, did I really know what I was thinking about? This is, this is how great our pastoral staff is, to be able to throw themselves out there and put the vulnerability out there of us somewhere close to the middle school stage. Some had a little bit more trouble finding the pictures as they have been hidden deep in the recesses of their trunks. And, and for me, they would do this to help me out here. And you think about looking at those guys up there, at the moment, they probably would have said, yeah, I feel a little awkward there. Looking back on it, they're going, what was I thinking? I'm not going to add any commentary to these because they have done me a solid by even providing this stuff. So I'll let you provide your own commentary with this. And yes, if you can't recognize, that's all six of our pastors up there somewhere. So you can play the guessing game with that. Man, I don't know, what's your, what's your compassion towards? Some of you here, it's working with toddlers. Some of you, it's working in our food pantry. Your compassion may be engaged in that way. Man, I'm so encouraged by those that have signed up for Night to Shine to provide a prom experience for those who may not have a prom experience uh, through their school. Some of you have compassion towards refugees. Some of you have compassion. I have compassion towards my friends in Myerstown and the Bills fans up there as well. Look, the compassion's the starting point for us, right? Like we have it, we have it wired in us. But compassion doesn't mean that you overlook every wrong and every problem. Compassion is that your heart breaks for them. You really want to help them find what, what they're really looking for and what they really need. And it may be tending to others' needs physically or emotionally, their need, those needs first. And Jesus' compassion here is for the lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Yes, sheep have physical needs. He's referring to that, that they have physical needs, but they need more than just food. And Jesus addresses these needs as well. Sheep need direction, protection, security, and Jesus will address these as well. And so his response of compassion shouldn't surprise us. It's in his nature. When we're talking about I am, this is part of I am. In his nature, he, he, it's more than just what he does. Psalm 116.5 says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. He looks at us with compassion. And this is convicting to me because do I desire to live with the compassion of Jesus? Or like the disciples, will I move away from this? You know, a true view of Jesus gives us clear eyes of compassion. So this is going to be no uh, dust off your feet and move on situation like earlier. But he's going to expand their heart, their skills, and their trust in himself. And so what do we see? Jesus being interrupted from his time with the disciples. He responds to the crowd with teaching and healing through a heart of compassion. Because God always determines the right time for ministry. 
Jesus teaches us to seize the opportunities when it rises. You know, living sin is not just at church or at small group or a scheduled breakfast with a friend. Living sin can be at the times when we were hoping for rest. Living sin isn't necessarily a calendar item. And this may be hard for about half of this room. I know I'm in that half that is a very scheduled person. I really like to-do lists. And sometimes I can feel that people will interrupt my schedule and to-do lists and I become more inflexible with that. But a heart of compassion changes our reception of curious people interrupting us. His heart of compassion resulted in welcoming them. He says it here in verse 11. And when the crowds learned that they followed him and he welcomed them, Jesus welcomed the crowd when they came to him at what I would perceive as an inconvenient time, but his compassion sought as the right time because Jesus will welcome the inconvenience in his life. Serving others, ministering to others means welcoming others into our lives. How do you do with welcoming the interruptions for the sake of the gospel? Think about some of your daily interactions. You get home from work and a roommate or spouse is needing some attention in that moment. You have a deadline at work and a coworker needs some wisdom for their life. You're at the grocery store and someone shares more than aisle seven was ready to handle in that moment. You thought a how you doing was gonna be just enough to move on. And yet they begin to open up about some things going on in their life when responding to how you doing. How about right before kickoff on championship weekend? And that neighbor that you found to be difficult because they don't mow their lawn enough or they have a really loud vehicle that drives in at night, shows up and they need a jump for their vehicle. How about a lost family member at a holiday gathering who, let's just say, doesn't see the world as you see it. And instead of maybe backing out of the conversation, they want to share about mental health struggles they've been dealing with. These are real situations, obviously, that... That, that you live. And for me, it tends to be right before bed with my kids, putting a kid to bed and a question that they ask, awesome questions that they ask. But at that time, I have to weigh, this is a gospel interaction. And Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He healed the hurting and welcomed them all. And he shows us that when it comes to serving the crowd, God's timing is always right. And you know, if our heart's going to grow in compassion, then we're going to See God's timing as a blessing, not an inconvenience. So to serve the crowd, we not only need to be ready for God's timing, and God will use any situation, even if we feel unprepared. Because if you're feeling unprepared right now for when those timings are, Jesus has more to this. And so we need to be resourceful. To follow Jesus' example and serve the crowd, we must be ready. And now point two, we must be resourceful. God can use anything to accomplish his purpose. So it's one thing to have compassion and welcome the crowd, but it's another thing to step up and meet their needs. What do you do when you see a need and don't have the resources to meet it? How you answer that question reveals how compassionate your heart may be. Jesus has spent the day healing and teaching. The disciples watched in their weary, probably annoyed state at this point. You'll see some context to that a little bit later. 
Now, the disciples are rightly observing a potential problem that's looming. More than that, they are about to reveal the condition of their heart. Check out verse 12. Now, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. The day, was, the day itself was, was getting late. You know, the day began to wear away. And the disciples implored Jesus. Do you see what they say there? We'll send the crowd away. So the crowd can find their own food and lodging before it's too late. He tells them, find their own lodging, right? The crowd, remember, wasn't from Bethsaida. They had come from a distance there. And so he doesn't just say, tell them to go home. It's too far for them to go home. So it's like, Go find some place to stay. He also tells them they need to go get provisions. They need to go get food. The crowd didn't have food options. The crowd probably wasn't anticipating staying that long or they might have planned ahead. And he also says it's in a desolate place where they were. They weren't close to anything. So can you see the problem that's arising here, that's looming? And the disciples are watching out for this. Would you respond like the disciples, maybe saying, I, I can't solve these problems? Or, or maybe you judge their motives a little bit. Like, why didn't they just plan ahead? If they would have planned ahead, they would be just fine. Because the disciples want the spiritual ministry to halt so the crowd can deal with their own physical problems. Disciples' observation is not wrong. We're about ready to have a food and lodging issue. But Jesus is going to help them connect the idea of physical ministry with spiritual ministry here. You see, Jesus still needs to fill in some gaps between their head and their heart. They're still confused. The disciples are confused. They understand intellectually the gospel because they were just preaching it on their mission trip. Said they were preaching and the kingdom of God everywhere. So they had plenty of repetitions and they knew what they were preaching. But the disciples were still learning how to live out the gospel. While disciples would rather just send the crowd away, Jesus is going to serve the crowd right there. Jesus is going to deal with both the physical and spiritual needs. And so here we are in our narrative. As with every good narrative, this is what we call the rising action. We're getting near a tension point because there is ministry happening. There's teaching and healing happening in this scene. The day is getting late. The people don't have food or lodging. And the disciples want to send the crowd away to figure out their own problem. And a rising action hits the climax with Jesus' response in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus tells the disciples to figure it out. He says, you give them something to eat. And here we've reached the tension point in our story. The you give them something to eat to a crowd that is about to get pretty hangry. The disciples think Jesus' solution is for them to take the responsibility to figure out the crowd's problem. And Jesus here is testing them, not tricking them. John talks about this in his account of this, uh, of this story, uh, that Jesus is testing them because he already knew what he would do. And so the training continues. And like 
Every great teacher who provides a test, you know the test is actually for the students, not the teacher. It's to reveal what the students know, not actually what the teacher has done. So Jesus gave the instruction to feed the crowd. And the disciples have yet to grasp that Jesus himself is the solution. Verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. 5,000 men, that translates as man, men. So there was probably thousands more if the women and children were along as well. So the disciples are rightly perceiving that this is an impossible task before them. The problem is lack of resources. There's no obvious food around, so the disciples are 100% correct with this. There isn't enough money to feed everyone. In fact, the tone here of Luke's description in this is, do you want us to feed all these people? You can sense the sarcasm that may be uh, coming there. In John 6, Jesus directly asks Philip, Now look, if anybody's going to know where to get food, it's Philip. Remember, his hometown was Bethsaida. He probably has connections there. Uh, In John 6, 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One denarii is one one day's uh, wage for a, a common laborer. So we're talking about 200 days of work And that's not even enough to give them a little. You get what he's saying. So Jesus even hands it off to Philip saying, hey man, this is your hometown. Can't you do something here? Even Philip sees the problem. It's it's like I'm a Lancaster County boy. If you come to me and you say, hey, Jared, um, where can I get some good Amish food? I'm gonna be like, sorry, man, you're out of luck. It's Sunday, no Sunday sales with the Amish, right? So like, I would look at you and say, that's an impossible task. It's not gonna be able to happen. But the disciples here are going to be distancing themselves from the problem. But what Jesus is going to be showing us is that every problem should be driving us to the Savior. There was nothing to eat. They're in the uh, we-need-a-miracle state. No obvious solution except to tell the crowd to go away. And Jesus didn't solve their problem right there. He seems to actually be making more stress on the disciples for telling them to, you give them something to eat. But as we said earlier, he is testing them here. When you're missing a solution, what do you do? Do you push people away and say, I hope you figure it out. Good luck. Jesus is giving them a task that is beyond them to move them back to him. And Jesus here reminds us of the possibilities that he can do the impossible. He isn't scared of what we perceive as the impossible, the physical things and the spiritual things that we're dealing with. And Jesus already had the solution. I love how Warren Wiersbe says this. In the crisis hours of life, when your resources resources are low and your responsibilities are great, it is good to remember that God already has the problem solved. Jesus had them start with what they already had. Jesus had a starting point for them. And in every gospel account, the five loaves and two fish, enough for one person is the starting point. John 6 even tells us it's a young boy that had faith, or that we believe that had faith, that gave up his five loaves and two fish. And yet there were still some gaps to be filled for the disciples, connecting the head 
and the heart so they can use their hands. You know, this story is not merely for the curious crowd or a boy with faith. Jesus could have just said, all right, just move aside. I'll take care of this. You're right. There's a problem. I don't need you anymore. But it's for those who are living to be sent like these disciples. So as I put myself in their shoes, I can feel the tension in my soul. That question of, will Jesus show up this time? Like, is this the time that I'm going to step out and look foolish? But remembering that any time we lack faith is an opportunity for dependence on him. The, will Jesus show up this time? Look, the, the win here is not merely a miracle of food. But the win here is the miracle of faith and trust to step out. And we see three very important principles uh, that Jesus is teaching us through the sentence, you give them something to eat. First of all, Jesus cares about our physical needs. I don't want to just run past that. That Jesus cares about our physical needs. He wants to care for us. We see that in his healing and his feeding. He cares about our physical needs. Secondly, that we see that he cares about our dependence on him and he will do whatever it takes to help grow us in dependence towards him. Dependence is what starts our relationship with him. That when we make him Lord of our life, that we're depending on him as the one who can save us from our sins. But dependence just doesn't stop there. That it's what grows our relationship with him. This is what builds his kingdom, people depending on Jesus. He cares about our physical needs. He cares about our dependence on him and remembering that he can accomplish the impossible. I know I need to remember that sometimes, that what I perceive as impossible, the creator of the universe can accomplish what I would perceive as the impossible. The disciples couldn't see a helpful solution, so Jesus will show them an opportunity to grow their dependence, shall we say. What are, we, what are the disciples missing here? Well, serving the crowd will always take dependence on him. They had just seen God work through them with casting out demons, healing, and teaching. Think about the amazing things that they had just seen and done through Jesus. And now they're in a place where they don't think Jesus is going to show up to do something miraculous. How easily we can forget and doubt the Lord. Sometimes I need to remember back about the miraculous things that he's done and that I've seen and how he's worked through other people to remember, is he going to show up this time? He always shows up in his time. How easily we forget that we have power and authority. And Jesus didn't just tell his disciples to move aside and let him work. He still is going to use them. Class is still in session. And so what does he say here uh, in verse 14? And he said to his disciples, okay, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so. And, he, and, he had, and they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves, two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Jesus continues to involve his disciples in his work. You can see here, go to Jesus. Then step one, separate crowds into 50. Step two, distribute the food I give you. Pretty easy steps, Jesus does the miraculous work. No need to overthink this. Go to Jesus, 
Separate the people, distribute the food, and watch Jesus work. Jesus accomplishes the impossible, the miraculous work with what they had because God can use anything to accomplish his purpose. Uh, Jesus may be asking you to take simple steps in life. Count to 50, pass out some bread. Count to 50, pass out some bread, watch me work. We go to Jesus, count to 50, pass out what he gives you. We know that there's a hunger problem in the world. Something that was on the hearts of our leaders here is, how can we help in those ways? How can we even reach Lancaster? April of 2020, 12 pallets of food showed up. Somebody said, hey, these are, we need to get rid of these. They're going to go bad soon. Can you distribute them before they reach an expiration date? And they got dropped off and just asked to distribute it. Those that have worked in the food pantry can tell you amazing stories. I saw a ton of people that were up there yesterday just in and out and, and, and preparing things. I'm told in 2021, just in, that, just in that year, 2021, equivalent to 23 tractor trailer loads worth of food have left the property. Praise God. Food shows up, distribute the food. The problem itself may seem extremely overwhelming. God says, I'm going to provide something. I'm going to do the miraculous work of getting people to show up. And you're going to see how it just, food just keeps flowing in and flowing out. Be faithful. God is using us to see the impossible work that he's doing and just to bring him more glory. Even as Jesus, who was sent to do his father's will, he desired glory for his father through serving. And Jesus is going to model the crowd and his dependence on the Father to accomplish the Father's will. Notice Jesus' dependence here in verse 16 on the Father, here in the midst of this miraculous work, so all glory can be pointed back to God. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. Well, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them, then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Jesus looked up to heaven in a posture of praise to God. Just look what he did here. Jesus took the bread. He took what they had, blessed it, broke the bread, gave out the bread. This is a pattern that's going to be initiated here and seen throughout Jesus' ministry. Take, bless, break, give. I love it even how Luke, this, how Luke will show this several times in the Gospels and I wonder if the disciples were even thinking about this miracle of feeding 5,000 as they sat at the Last Supper, breaking bread and passing it around. Because Luke references this in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19. It says, and he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, when he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' pattern will be to take, bless, break, give, but it's going to be more than just bread, of course. Jesus will use bread to help the disciples know him in feeding the 5,000. And later at his last supper with them to reveal his true purpose as their savior. His body will be broken for them to heal their souls. And through his broken body will give them eternal life. He will be their sustenance physically and spiritually 
And what I'm reminded of here is that we never should underestimate the power of provision and serving to open the door for the gospel. Well, what do we see in the end of this story? We see satisfaction and surplus. Satisfaction and surplus are the results. Verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Notice who was satisfied. All were satisfied. Everyone that came from the curious to the called. Even what it says here, what I'm reading here is those with gluten-free allergies ate bread and were satisfied. All that came were satisfied. But this wasn't an appetizer. It was a meal that satisfied. The prophet Isaiah reminds us the compassion of our Lord and how he satisfies our needs. Isaiah 55 He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. He says there come everyone who thirsts, an urgent invitation A compassionate heart, trusting God will do the miraculous work, is living sent. And to cement this point, notice how many baskets Jesus had as leftovers. That's right, 12. 12 baskets, one for each of his disciples. I don't know how it played out in my mind. You know, Jesus says, hey, uh, can you guys grab the extras? Just make sure they're all picked up and they all pick up one and they all look down and they all look and they all have one extra basket with them. The basket is a physical reminder that God provides. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. Our God provides, he provides. God can do the impossible. He involves us in the impossible. And when you see the impossible before you, you don't need to look away, you can look to God. Look to him, count to 50, pass out bread. God can use anything to accomplish his tasks. And so we must be ready for God's timing and be ready because he can use anything to accomplish his will. So another patient, compassionate training from Jesus is in the books. It won't be his last and we'll continue. He'll continue to be patient as he shows his disciples and us how to train his followers. How do we get there? How do we get to a place of being ready for God's timing? How do we get to a place to trust that he's going to be resourceful in those moments when the impossible may happen to develop a heart of compassion? Remember the heart of compassion that Jesus looked in us when we were lost, a sheep without a shepherd. And now we yearn to have that for others because we want to send out compassionate people who long to be close to Jesus and to meet needs. I'm so thankful that my mom at six years old, my mom, when I was a six-year-old, had compassion on me. It was the end of our devotional time that she had done every night with us. And for some reason that night, I had a lot more questions Hell was uh, in my mind uh, and was scared of it and didn't want to go there, had lots of questions. If you know me, you know I can rattle off a lot of questions sometimes. And um, 
My mom and her compassionate heart for a six-year-old boy who was scared led me to repentance and a relationship with a compassionate Savior. Just think about just the time and just the patience she had in that moment. Changed my life. It wasn't a convenient time for her, but my mom was faithful and shared what she knew was true. She probably had done it other times, and for whatever reason, that time, it hit. And so we have sent opportunities all around us. God knows the timing. He'll supply your needs. And so when you see the impossible in your own life or the evangelism opportunities before you, don't look away. We can look to God. He can do amazing things with the impossible. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded even now of the compassion that you showed on us. Lord, even when we didn't understand and we were just curious and making decisions in our life that just just didn't make any sense, but God, you were patient and kind to us. Lord, you did the impossible work of salvation that none of us could accomplish, and yet you came in your compassionate heart lived a perfect life, died on the cross. And God, we stand before you today desiring to use it as an overflow to other people. Lord, help us to have eyes to see the timings that you have there, to be able to lean into moments that are before us, that we can trust that your timing is perfect. And God, with what little we have, whether it's knowledge, resources, Lord, that you can use anything to accomplish your purpose. And so many times, just even stepping out is what you were trying to teach us to draw us closer to you. And so God, if those moments are, the Holy Spirit's convicting us right now, God, I pray that we can have the boldness to be able to walk that out. Because God, you can do amazing things. God, you do wonderful things. You do the impossible things, God. And so I pray now that we can walk with confidence that you can accomplish the impossible, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.